Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out, open them up to the book of Romans. Romans, the fourth chapter, is where we're going to be this evening as we continue our year-long preaching theme in talking about the gospel according to Romans as we just work chapter by chapter through this great epistle of the New Testament and what we can learn from it and better understand it as a complete uh, unit of thought together. If you get over to Romans chapter 4, we'll just settle right there for the duration of our study tonight. It is great to see everybody again. So glad that you uh, chose to be with us this evening as we bring to a close what has been just a very marvelous first day of the week, just a beautiful day God has given us. Uh, we come meeting once again, and it seems like the daylight's been extended a little bit uh, week by week. And actually, I think next Sunday's when the time officially springs back forward. Uh, and so uh, it's just nice and pleasant to be able to come together again as the sun is just starting to set and for us to focus our attention once again upon our great God. And I hope you're ready to write now to give some very serious uh, attention to the Word of God. Romans is not, somebody's already said this to me a time or two before, and I knew this well before I started this uh, study in Romans. R Romans is not the milk of the Word. We are talking about some meat kinds of stuff, and that means we need to be kind of diligent and locked in as we study through uh, this important book of the Bible. Read with me, if you will, in Romans the fourth chapter. I'm reading here in verse 16. I want to begin with verse 16 in Romans 4 and in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Are you a child of Abraham? I'm actually asking that to you. Are you a child of Abraham? You know, if I were to ask that question to a Jew, are you a child of Abraham? A Jew would say almost immediately, yes, absolutely. You should know as well that even if I asked that question to a Muslim, even a Muslim when asked, are you a child of Abraham, would answer, yes, yes I am. But if you ask a Christian that question, are you a child of Abraham, it seems like you get an awful lot of him hawing around. Well, I... Uh um, I don't, um, I, I, I'm a child of God. I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm one of God's children. But Paul says here in Romans chapter 4 that if you are a Christian, then you are a child of Abraham because Abraham is the father of us all. Have you ever thought about that before? Have you ever thought about the fact that there is a sense in which you are in Abraham's family? Maybe what you're thinking is you kind of mull that over is, okay, Josh, I guess that's kind of interesting, but I'm not really sure it's all that important. I mean, what's the big deal about being a child of Abraham? Well, welcome to Romans the fourth chapter. Tonight we want to explain and explore what it means to be a child of Abraham because what Paul is going to deliver in this chapter is he's going to say that being in Abraham's family means being in God's family family. And that matters, doesn't it? I want to be in God's family, which means I want to know about being in the family of Abraham. Now, when the church at Rome received this letter, received this epistle, and as it was being read to them, or maybe as they were even, some of them were maybe even reading it together, you have to imagine that by the time they got to this portion of the epistle, there would have been just a whew, big sigh of relief a feeling of respite for a moment. 
Because for three chapters, Paul has almost mercilessly and unrelentingly went to say and to dismantle any notions that somehow you can just be born into the family of God. Because what Paul points out in the first three chapters is that all have sinned, that all have fallen short of God's glory, and that means that all are subject to the judgment and the wrath of God, Jews and Gentiles. And by the end of chapter 3, though, that begins to shift a little bit. We noticed that last Sunday night in our study of Romans 3. There's a little light at the end of the tunnel that begins to be exposed. That yes, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But verse 24 goes on to say that all can be justified by His grace through faith in Jesus. And what Paul is going to show now in Romans the fourth chapter is that the gospel, it absolutely hinges on faith. That even if you happen to be in the bloodline of Abraham. Maybe you are the great, 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 great grandson or great, 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 great granddaughter of Abraham. If in your mind what you believe is that means is that, well, I just need to be right with God by doing good works and I'm justified by my good deeds and the works of the law that I do. Paul's going to say you need to think again. That's not how the gospel works. That's not how we are admitted entrance into the family of God. In fact, that's not how Abraham was admitted to the family of God. The message of Romans chapter 4 is going to be again and again and again that you need to trust the Lord. And the Bible word for that is faith. And what Paul will argue in kind of the first half of this chapter is that that's how Abraham was saved. He was saved by faith. And then in the back half of the chapter, he's going to argue that if you and I, if we're going to be saved, if the people at Rome was going to be saved, it's going to take the exact same thing. It's going to take faith. Now, before I can launch into that discussion this evening, I need to make certain that we don't have any misunderstandings at all. So I need to just begin with a couple of disclaimers. Let me just say to you, first of all, very, very clearly, that this chapter, Romans 4, it is not, I repeat, it is not an argument for faith-only salvation. No one in the church at Rome, the original recipients of this letter, nobody in that church was somehow under the impression that you could be saved by faith alone, believing in your heart alone, without any kind of, of action, any kind of obedience and work going along with that. In fact, I'd maybe even be so bold as to say this evening, that there weren't any churches or any Christians in New Testament times who believed that you could be saved by faith only. That false idea and that false doctrine really didn't begin to crop up until centuries later. And so for anybody to try to read the text of Romans chapter 4 and all that it says about faith and somehow come away thinking that, oh, you can be saved by faith alone, that is a huge mistake. And the reason I say all of that here at the beginning is because I don't want us tonight to get uncomfortable just because Paul is going to say several times here that we can be saved by faith. Somebody's going to read those verses and be like, Oh my, come on Paul. Paul, don't you know anything about repentance? Paul, haven't you ever heard about confession? Paul, don't you know anything about baptism? Well, as a matter of fact, Paul does know about those things. In fact, he talks about them in this epistle. 
He's already talked about repentance, chapter 2, verse 4. He's going to talk about confession, chapter 10. He'll talk very thoroughly about baptism in chapter 6. Paul knows that all of those steps are crucial and important and essential. But what Paul also recognizes is that faith is the starting point. It is the engine that drives this train. Paul understands that without faith, without trust in God, then then everything else falls apart. Without faith, there's not going to be any of that other stuff. And so this evening, I'm going to be just content to let Paul be Paul. I'm going to let him just say what he says. I am not going to feel obligated that every time Paul says something about being saved by faith, that I feel the need to somehow say, now now you guys know that that doesn't exclude baptism, don't you? I, I take it that you already know that. And I believe that the church at Rome already knew that. When Paul speaks of faith in this chapter, he's not saying that, well, all you got to do is just believe in Jesus in your heart or in your mind and you're going to be saved. No, he speaks about faith as being the driving force, the driving principle in all that we do for the Lord. Secondly, by way of disclaimer this evening, you should know that even though this chapter does say a lot about faith and about being justified, being saved, being uh, forgiven because of faith, you need to know that this chapter really it really isn't about how to be saved. Now, this chapter certainly teaches some very important principles for saving faith. I get that. But that really is not the point of this chapter. That's really not the reason that Paul is writing this. After all, why would Paul need to write to the church at Rome to tell them how to be saved? They're already saved. They're already Christians. This is not a primer for these folks about salvation. Instead, what's going on in the church at Rome? Well, you got problems. You got division. You got all kinds of frustration and bickering going on in that congregation. This is a fractured church, and this is a church that's having some, they're having some unity problems. And Paul writes this letter to say to them, you need to quit that. You need to quit being divided. Brother Jew, you need to quit looking across the aisle at Brother Gentile and thinking less of him. And Brother Gentile, you need to quit looking across the aisle at Brother Jew and somehow thinking less of him. You're all sinners. Haven't we got enough of that already? Chapter 1, 2, and 3. But now Paul comes to chapter 4. And he says, now you're all Christians. Now you're all saved. Now you are all saved the same way. If you are in Abraham's family... You got there the same way that the brother on the other side of the aisle got there. You got there by the way of faith. And so this chapter really isn't meant to be a step-by-step procedural for how to be saved. What it's meant to do is it's meant to show that unity can be achieved and it can be achieved through our common faith in Jesus the Christ. And so with those disclaimers out of the way, Let's just read a little bit about Abraham and about faith. Verse 1, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I think already in these first three verses, Paul is saying something here. He is saying something about salvation. And he says something here about how no one earns their way into God's family. That's just not how that works. The way that you get into God's family is by being 
counted righteous. Now the question is, what does that mean? What does that mean, being counted righteous? That term counted or counts or count, that term is used 11 times in this chapter alone. So what exactly does Paul mean when he uses that kind of terminology and that kind of lingo? Well, actually, actually the term counted there is actually a banking term. And it means to enter a credit or a deposit to someone else's account. We'll say that again. To enter a credit or a deposit into someone else's account. And in this particular instance, what are we talking about? We're certainly not talking about money. No, what we're talking about is we're talking about how God credited and deposited righteousness into Abraham's account. Verse 4, verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Notice here how Paul says, this is very different. This idea of counted as righteousness, this is a very different concept than the idea of earning something. If you go to work and you put in a hard day's work, or put in a full week's worth of work, and then your boss comes to you on payday, and they bring you a paycheck, and they say, here, here, I've got a present for you, I've got a gift for you, what are you going to say? You say, that's not a present, that's not a gift, I earned that, I worked for that, give me my paycheck, it's what you owe me. That's how that works when you work for something. But by way of contrast, verse 5, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in Him, or trusts in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Paul says here that righteousness is not some paycheck that you can earn, or I can earn, or even Abraham could earn. It is not something that God is ever going to owe us or anybody else. Instead, what Paul says is he says, we will believe, we will believe in God, we will believe in Jesus, and God will then deposit that righteousness into our heavenly account, our spiritual account, if you will. The other other way of saying that is God makes us right, and He does that as a gift. That is the very idea of grace. Paul really punctuates that thought by referencing the example of David And he quotes from the 32nd Psalm in Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2. Look at what he says in verse 6. In verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Here's the quotation. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And blessed are those whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you notice that what you have there is you actually have three kind of parallel expressions in that psalm. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins are not counted against him. Do you see there? Those, all three of those ideas are saying the same thing. That, those ideas explain to us what this idea of counted righteous means. It's just another way of saying being forgiven, being made right with God. And that is a gift, isn't it? It is a huge gift. The forgiveness of sin, the covering of sin, not having sin counted against us, that is a huge monumental gift that we could never, ever earn. And so instead what God does, instead of somehow expecting something from us that we're going to be able to earn that gift, what God does is He looks at our faith and He forgives sin. He counts us as righteous. We cannot be saved based on our record or our achievements or by law-keeping. 
None of us, none of us are good law keepers. We've already noticed that in the first three chapters. If we're going to be saved, if we're going to be in the family of God, if we're going to be in the lineage and in the family of Abraham, then it's going to have to depend on faith. And so, verse 9, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised? Now, we need to just appreciate what Paul kind of already anticipates about what he's going to be up against here, the kind of people that would have existed in that congregation at Rome. There would have been some Jewish brethren who would have been ready to say, Yeah, Paul, you've got to have faith. Believing and trusting God, that is very, very important. But you know what, Paul? It is only the faith of circumcised folks that really matters. That's really the only kind of faith that has any kind of value here. If you're not circumcised, and you know what, it doesn't really matter how much faith you've got, you're out. All bets are off for you. In our Wednesday night study in the book of Acts, we're fixing to be very close upon uh, how this commonly held belief about circumcision in the first century, how it caused lots of problems in the first century world. There were first century, even first century Christians who believed that circumcision was an essential step in order to be saved. That if you wanted to be right with God, okay, yeah, you needed to hear and believe and repent and confess and be baptized, but you also on top of that had to be circumcised. And Paul, of course, is going to have to deal with that very personally in Acts the 15th chapter. So the question that's come here is, is, is that true? Is being circumcised the real measure of being a person that has saving faith? Paul answers it, the back part of verse 9. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. What Paul challenges his readers to do is to actually just crank out their Old Testament, open up the book of Genesis, do a little bit of a history lesson. When, here's the question, when did that covenant of circumcision begin? If circumcision is so important, let's just go back to the beginning. When did the covenant of circumcision begin? Did that begin when Abraham first began to do business with God and began demonstrating his faith in God? Was circumcision on the scene at that moment? Answer, no it was not. Abraham was counted righteous before God all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. In fact, especially in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham wasn't circumcised. That wasn't introduced until Genesis 17. Do you know how long is in between those kind of time markers? At least 13 years. And so what Paul says here to these brethren is he says, hey, don't go bringing that circumcision stuff into this discussion. That business about Abraham being circumcised, that happened way after, literally years after, he had already been counted righteous. And how was he counted righteous? It wasn't by circumcision. He was counted righteous by his faith, even while he was an uncircumcised man. Verse 11, verse 11 he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, when? While he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. You know, in many ways, Abraham is kind of the, the ideal model, the ideal example for what it means to be made right with God purely by faith. Maybe in some ways you could go so far as to say that Abraham was a Gentile 
who became the father of the Jews. Imagine saying that to a room full of Jews. That probably wouldn't go over very well, but I think that's actually what's going on there. Verse 12, verse 12, And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul just kind of just says it here. Hey, listen, circumcision, that, that doesn't matter anymore. That, that, that's not the key. That's not the golden ticket that you need in order to be in a right relationship with God. The key here is do you trust the Lord? I'm going to let God take care of things. I'm going to trust the Lord to handle how some stuff works. There's going to be things in life that people are going to encounter that I don't have any control over that. There's nothing I can do about that. What am I going to do? Am I going to try and just demand that I can control that and I'm going to take care of that? No. There's going to be some stuff we're going to have to learn. God's going to take care of that, especially when it comes to salvation. He's the one who knows how that works. He's the one that's going to take care of all that. I'll have to walk by faith. That's what Abraham did. And what Abraham did, Paul says, it ended up setting the example for everybody who would come after him. Circumcised, uncircumcised, Jew, Gentile, people living in first century Palestine, people living in 21st century Pulaski County. The way of faith. That's the way for all people to be made right with God. Now, right about here, once again, Paul gets to sniffing and he gets to suspecting that there's probably going to be another objection to the things that he said already. Perhaps there would be some Jewish Christian in the audience and they're reading this letter and they maybe would say, yes, Paul, you're right. I see faith, trusting God, that's really important. And yeah, you're right. You kind of got me on that question about when was Abraham circumcised and when was he justified by his faith. Abraham had that relationship with God long before the covenant of circumcision ever existed. You got me there. But, but Paul, let me ask you, buddy. What about the law? What about the law, Paul? You, you kind of been avoiding that. That's the big pink elephant in the room. What about the law? What about God's law? Because that's what really matters. It's about keeping and observing God's law. And you should know that there were Jews in New Testament times who actually believed and they taught that Abraham kept the law perfectly. And if you're constructing a Mount Rushmore of heroes of the Jewish faith, Abraham would probably be at the very pinnacle of that Mount Rushmore. There were people who thought that Abraham observed God's law perfectly, that in essence he was sinless. And so the way in order for us to be into Abraham's family is that, well, we need to find and, and have adhere strict obedience to the law. Paul says, mm, no, no, that doesn't work either. Verse 13, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, for it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. For, excuse me, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul says that if perfect law keeping is the pathway to God, then, then that's just going to end up being a disaster for pretty much everybody. All those promises that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, th those promises can't depend on Abraham's perfect keeping of the law. Why? Because he can't keep the law. And in fact, none of us can keep the law. The law, Paul says, it brings wrath. It points out what sin is. It points out that we are sinners. And that certainly is, is a good thing about the law. 
Paul says some nice things about the law of God. It shows us that we are sinners. It helps us to understand what sin is and how God feels about sin. But we cannot ever be justified by that law because we would never ever be able to meet its demands. Verse 16 again. That is why. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. You know, those promises that God made to Abraham, I'm thinking particularly about the promise about a Savior. Through thy seed, all the families of the earth, all nations of the earth, they will be blessed. That, that promise cannot be dependent upon the law, because if it were, if it were, then, then those promises would never be fulfilled. Those promises would end up being void. Everybody would be hopeless because those promises cannot come to pass by perfect law-keeping. Furthermore, if God's promises of salvation, if they are based on the law, then that poses another problem, and that is then only the Jews could even possibly have access to that hope. Because who was it that received the law? Who was the law of Moses for? It was for the Jews. It wasn't for Gentiles. It was for the Jews. And so what Paul says is he says, if we're going to have any hope at all, if salvation really is for everyone as God has designed it to be, if Abraham is in fact going to be the father of all people, then it's going to have to be through one way and one way only. It's going to have to be through faith. Verse 17. Verse 17 is a marvelous verse that's worth underlining. As it is written, and here's a quotation from Genesis 17, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Right here is the passage that really describes what Abraham's faith looked like in a very practical way, how his faith acted, what his faith did and what it's all about. We see here that to Abraham faith, faith is believing that God can do, God can do the unexplainable. Give life to the dead call into existence things that do not exist presently. This is a faith that believes and trusts in the extraordinary, that God is able to do extraordinary things. In fact, tell me more about that, Paul. And he does tell us more about that. Verse 18, verse 18 Paul says, In hope Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You know, here's these big promises that God's made to Abraham. Hey, you're going to be a father of many nations. Father of many nations? Lord, I, I, I don't even have a son. How's this going to work if I don't even have a child? And in fact, I'm past the age where I can have a son. Look at my wife. Look how old and wrinkly she is. How's she going to be? She's past the age of childbearing as well. Our bodies are as good as dead. But that's not what Abraham said. What Abraham said was, God's going to take care of it. This is what God said He's going to do, so I'm going to trust God. It seems almost just out of the realm of possibility that this could happen. I can't explain how it's going to happen, but I believe God that it is going to happen. Verse 20, verse 20, no distrust or no disbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, 
fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham says, I I don't know how the Lord is going to do this. I don't know how he's going to make all of this happen. But I'm going to trust in him regardless. When you read verses 20 and 21, it maybe is passages like that and ideas like that that maybe did cause Jews in first century times to think that Abraham was somehow perfect or that his faith was perfect. I, I, I don't believe those verses are trying to say to us that Abraham's faith was, was without spot or blemish, that he never had a bad day, that he just always, I mean, his faith was just excellent every single day, never had any doubts, never wavered at all. You read the book of Genesis and read the life of Abraham, you'll see his faith had down days. His faith had a lot of up days, but there were down days as well. What Paul's doing in verses 20 and 21 is he's simply just kind of summarizing a life of faith. He says that Abraham throughout his life, he put God first and trusted God, and the pattern of his life was that he was a person who was continually growing in his faith. That's what he says there in verse 20. He got stronger in his faith, better in his faith, deeper in his faith. Verse 22 now. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This, Paul says, this is what saving faith looks like in the life of Abraham. And while that's always kind of neat and interesting, okay, that's great to know about that good Old Testament guy. and He had a lot of faith and good for him, but what's that mean for me? Well... That's what these last three verses of the chapter are for. Here's what it means to us. Verse 23. But that, those words, it was counted to him, they weren't just written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul concludes this chapter by saying that we, we can possess that same kind of faith. That we need to be trusting in God in the same way that Abraham did so that we can be in that family. To believe that God can do the things that we don't understand or the things that we maybe can never explain. God is able to call the future into being as He did with Abraham. And I will be the first to confess that that is not always easy to have that kind of trust and faith in the Lord. That calls upon us to to relinquish some control, to let go of our pride, and to trust God to handle what we cannot. I like the analogy that I read one guy as he described all of this. He says it's kind of like a person who's drowning. You know, when somebody's drowning, it's not very easy for that person to just relax and to let the lifeguard do what they're trying to do. As the lifeguard's trying to bring that person to safety, what is oftentimes the drowning person doing? Kicking and pushing and thrashing and doing everything that they can almost to, to resist that. And it's not that they are not wanting to be saved. It's just that that's their reaction to that. I have to be in control of this. and I'm not sure that I can fully trust you to get me to where I need to be. But that's what we need. We need to let go. We need to relax. We need to let go and let that lifeguard do his job to bring us to safety. And so it is with God. That's the way of faith. That's what's being described here in Romans chapter 4. Now, let me conclude this evening with two takeaways or two questions that will be us worth carrying with us and taking with us and thinking about and then maybe taking some appropriate action as we see fit. First of all, let me just ask, do I have the faith of Abraham that's described here? 
You know, Paul talks about the Abraham faith as being something that is attainable, something that you and I can have. The question is, all right, do we have that kind of faith? Or maybe at a bare minimum, are we, are we striving for that kind of faith? Are we cultivating and growing that kind of faith in our life? You know, Abraham was not able to just make all of God's promises come to pass. I mean, it's not like Abraham could cause the Messiah to come into the world and bring blessing to all peoples. Abraham could do about that to force God's hand about that. That was way off into the future. It required trust. And you and I need to think about that. There are so many things in our world right now that, man, I really do wish I had some control over. I really wish I had some say over. There are things even in my life personally and in my sphere of influence in my world that, man, I wish I could, I wish there was more I could do about that. And I'll do what I can do. I'm going to do, take my part and do the actions that I need to be involved in. But at the end of the day, I'm going to have to just place my trust in God that He is going to cause all things to work together for good for those who love Him. Which brings me to this second takeaway question for us this evening, which might seem out of place as we've talked so much about faith this evening, but I do believe once again... This is the reason Paul is writing this chapter. And that is to ask, do I value being a part of Abraham's family, which is the same as being in God's family? Do I value being a part of that family? You know, think about the things that have been said already in this chapter. And all that use of terminology like all and everyone. God's plan is that everyone, would have the opportunity to be brought into a relationship with Him. Everyone would be able to place saving faith and trust in Him. In fact, there in verse 16, the Lord uses that expression there, gathering all His offspring. God's in the business of bringing people together, even people that are very different. God's in the business of bringing all of them together, Jews, Gentiles, black, white, men, women, young, old, rich, poor, everybody together, and to make out of us a spiritual nation, spiritual Israel. We simply call that the church. Do we value that? Do we see all that God has done in order to bring us together into that family? Are we working together for that common goal? It's all too easy many times for us to get to thinking and acting as if Christianity is this solo endeavor. It's this thing that I'm doing and absolutely there is an individual component to that. I do need to take charge of my salvation. But God never meant for that to be a solo endeavor. God meant for that to be a collective endeavor where we are helping each other and we lean upon one another. And as we have faith in the Lord, there is also a sense in which we're going to have faith in each other and we're going to help each other so that we can be in that final gathering together of God's family, or we'll be with Him for all of eternity. I need to think about those two questions this week. As we extend the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is worth thinking about that idea of, of faith once again, because that is where it all begins. It doesn't end with faith, but faith is the driving force that makes the engine and makes that train run. Do you have some faith this evening? Do you have faith about about Jesus, about who He is, that He is indeed God's Son, that He did come to this earth. God sent Him here to be the atoning sacrifice, but He didn't just die and remain dead in the tomb. No, He rose from the dead, and by His resurrection He is declared to be the Son of God with power. Do, do you believe that? And not only do you believe that mentally, but, but do you believe that enough to, to act upon it? Does that move you to action this evening? Are you willing to confess that faith before others? 
Are you willing to put sin out of your life? Are you willing to be baptized, be united in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? You'll take faith to do that kind of stuff. And the Lord will help you with that. And there are people here that will help you with that. If we can help somebody tonight to take those steps in order to become a child of God, tonight you can be granted entrance into God's family. You can be granted entrance into Abraham's family. That will be kind of neat. Imagine going to school tomorrow and telling your friends, Hey, I'm in the family of Abraham. Read about this guy in Genesis. I'm in his family now. And it's because I did this. That would be a great thing to say. Can we help you to do that tonight? If you are a Christian, but you've not been living like a child of God, like someone who is actually in God's family, brother, sister, you know, it really doesn't oftentimes take preaching to cause us to feel guilt when we have sin in our lives. If you know that that's there, you need to take care of that. You need to address that. Maybe you just need to address that between you and God personally. Maybe you do want to address that in a public fashion and call upon your brothers and sisters to pray with you and encourage you and to help you to serve God in a better way. Let's all help each other. Let's help each other to walk the way of faith so that we can be with the Lord in eternity and be in that great family gathering. If you're subject to the invitation in any way, we encourage you to come. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.